Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the CCRN Review Podcast Series. For those of you that are brand new, welcome. I am so happy to have you here, and I hope you will enjoy the series. Um, and for those of you that have followed me from day one or anywhere along the way, I welcome you back for a, another podcast. So today we are going to talk about hypertensive crisis. Before getting into our topic, though, I do have a couple of announcements. The first one being that uh, on Facebook, I have started a CCRN question of the day challenge. And so if you come and see my Facebook page, which is at Hoppy Presents, um, I ask a daily question. It's really been kind of fun. We just got underway. So as of this recording, which is July 9th of 2021, um, we have had uh, a couple weeks now worth of daily questions and people are really having fun and getting into it. So what I've been doing is I've been posing the question at around 9 a.m. Central Standard Time and then coming back later in the day right around supper time, 6 p.m., to discuss the answers with rationale. So it's really been kind of fun. So I invite you to join us there. That would be great. And I would appreciate, you know, a review and I would appreciate you following along. Also, if you would uh, check out my website, which is khoppypresents.com, you'll find um, several different things, listing of upcoming uh, podcasts, podcasts that are already available with links included, and then also freebies. I currently have a freebie out there right now, which is a basic rhythm interpretation cheat sheet. So for those of you that like to carry clipboards around, this certainly would be a nice addition to your references, or you can use it for precepting new people as well. So without further ado, then let's get into talking about hypertensive crisis. And what is it? It's really a hypertensive emergency that is severe enough to cause the patient to develop end organ damage. Now, I don't know about you, but I always wondered kind of like, what are these end organs that everybody talks about? Well, the ones that are really hit hard by hypertension include the brain, the heart, the kidneys, and the eyes. So when you think about people that have poorly controlled hypertension, 
they run that risk of winding up with stroke, heart attack, renal failure, and blindness. So it all kind of fits in together. Now, when we talk about hypertension, we know that it's one of the two poorest controlled disease processes in the world. So I'm sure if you've been in practice any time at all, that's not a real big news flash or surprise to you. So we break down hypertension into primary and secondary. Primary hypertension is what's also known as essential hypertension. And that is where we don't know the underlying cause per se. It could be genetic related. It you know, we see primary hypertension occurring more often in certain racial groups like African-Americans, for example, and then there's secondary hypertension. So obviously hypertension related to a secondary cause. And one of the things that we see a lot in critical care is hypertension related to renal disease. So just a couple of examples there. Now, hypertensive crisis presentation. What do we see when patients come in with hypertensive crisis? Usually it is a central nervous system type thing. So it's headache, it's irritability, cognitive alterations, maybe blurred or double vision. You can have the cardiac issues as well, including left ventricular failure, chest pain, Maybe the patient develops new onset of an S3 or S4, which, you know, that's not going to be very helpful to you unless you uh, look back in the records to see what the heart sounds were before. But let me just expand a little bit for you. When we talk about the S4 heart sound, the S4 heart sound very commonly is heard in patients with long-standing and poorly controlled hypertension. It sounds a lot like la dub dub like S1 is stuttering. It's also known as the presystolic sound. And what it represents is when the atria contract during the last phase of ventricular filling in order to complete that last 30% of ventricular filling. So clinically, we refer to that as atrial kick. Now, it should stand to reason then that patients with atrial fibrillation would not have an S4, would they? Because an S4 is produced when atrial kick forces fluid down into ventricles that are non-compliant and that's what happens in long-standing hypertension is that the ventricles be- can become non-compliant, have difficulty relaxing and filling. That's why these patients are really set up for diastolic dysfunction. So if there's no atrial kick, then there's not going to be an S4. So really what we see when a ventricle, or what we hear, I should say, when a ventricle becomes non-compliant is a vibratory sound as fluid blood volume is forced into that ventricle that's that's non-compliant. So what we're hearing as an extra sound is a vibratory tone. Other things we might see include uh, crackles present in patients that have left ventricular failure. Uh, the patient might also have epistaxis, and so that may initially bring them into the emergency department. 
far and above, you know, all others, you have the patient that comes in with headache and possible cognitive alterations. Now, a certain percentage of patients, and I, I've read everything up to from 15 to 25% cited of patients that come in with hypertensive crisis will develop with, uh, or present with hypertensive encephalopathy. There's some symptoms that go along with uh, the encephalopathic patient as well, and that is a very severe occipital or anterior headache. That's the most common location for the headache. They might have nausea, vomiting, visual disturbances, as we discussed before, an excessive rise in blood pressure. Of course, that's what's causing the encephalopathy, retinopathy, papilledema when we look in the patient's eyes, and the patient may be very confused or agitated, or they may present lethargic or it could present or progress to coma. The patient may also um, display transitory focal neurologic signs. So that might be a monoparesis, you know, so the person drops their coffee pot, they lose, they lose all, all feeling in, in their arm, for example, and then positive Babinski. And you know, the thing about these neurologic signs like Babinski, I always have people, um, that are new that, that come up and ask me things like, you know, do I want that? Like Babinski, do I want a Babinski? Well, not unless you're under age two. So we can expect to see a positive Babinski up into the age of two and past that time, we should see negative Babinski. And because this is kind of confusing, it always is, is best to refer to the movement of the toes when you stroke the foot from the heel up the lateral side and move in medially toward the large toe. Again, you are stroking the bottom of the foot. So the plantar aspect of the foot and what you expect to see in anybody over the age of two is you expect to see downward movement of the toes. You know, they should kind of curl down kind of like, well, it is really the tickle response. Positive Babinski is where you have upgoing toes. As a general rule, you know, the large toe extends and the other toes move upward. Now, you know, in the nurse's um, assessment book, they always say that the, the great toe moves up and the other toes fan outward and move up. Well, you know, it doesn't always reach out and grab you like that. So really what you're looking for is are the toes moving upward or downward? If there's up going toes, we consider that to be a positive Babinski. If they are down going toes, we call that a negative Babinski. So when we talk hypertension now and hypertensive crisis and the brain, let's just kind of focus on the brain for a minute. We know that the brain has this very intricate network of vessels that provide for it a continuous and regulated flow. That's called 
auto-regulation. And the blood vessels of the brain are able to dilate and constrict in order to try and maintain that consistent flow, again called auto-regulation. But guys, there are parameters in which this auto-regulatory mechanism operates. And those parameters are a mean arterial pressure on the low end of 50 and a mean arterial pressure on the high end of 150. Well, so since we're talking about hypertensive crisis, we're talking about somebody that is going to have an MAP that's going up, right? So once we get a mean arterial pressure greater than 150, we see loss of autoregulation. And that's a bad thing when you lose autoregulation, because what happens then is that the vessels of the brain then cannot autoregulate flow into the brain and constrict to limit the amount of flow and pressure. And therefore the brain becomes very passively dependent on flow at whatever pressure is propelling that flow up to the head. And that can cause an increase in ICP and cerebral edema. So at a mean arterial pressure greater than 150 guys, auto-regulation is lost and you have a greater incidence then or a greater chance of having intracranial pressure increases and the possibility really of herniation. As far as the eyes are concerned, we can have retinal hemorrhage. We can also have papal edema. As far as the heart, these people over time, I mean, it doesn't happen acutely, although acutely you can have acute dilatation of the left ventricle, but it takes time to develop hypertrophy of that left ventricle and it can become huge. And so again, it's having to pump out against high resistance. And we know the quick down and dirty way to evaluate somebody's systemic vascular resistance is to look at their diastolic blood pressure. So a left ventricle that has had to chronically eject out into a diastolic blood pressure that is high, it's going to increase in size, increase in muscle mass. So anytime we have an increase in size and an increase in muscle mass, of course, our myocardial oxygen consumption is going to go up. And so we have to really think about the fact that there has to be adequate supply in order to, de- in order to meet that demand because of that enlarging ventricle. So you throw a little coronary artery disease in on this, a larger muscle that consumes more oxygen, and you can quickly understand why Hypertension is one of the risk factors for the development of myocardial infarction. So our goal in treating patients with hypertensive crisis is not to go crazy and drop the blood pressure very rapidly. Our goal, and you know, depending upon the reference that that you look at, it can be very different, but As a general rule, the goal is to lower the mean arterial pressure by about 25% within the first hour or so in a controlled, predictable, and safe fashion. 
So our target goal is to try and get that blood pressure down around or below 160 over 100 within two to six hours. Now that's not saying drop the blood pressure down to 110 over 60 very rapidly because cerebral hypoperfusion can occur as a result of lowering the blood pressure too rapidly. So kind of a like a prudent target is that 160 over 100 range within two to six hours. So again, it can really vary based on, you know, based on your patient. So what kinds of things are we going to be using in order to bring down the blood pressure? So I'm going to go through the variety of different drugs that we have to, to use and talk about the pros and cons of each of them. Nitroglycerin, we've talked about it in the cardiovascular section earlier when we talked about acute coronary syndrome. We know that at a dosage range up to one mic per kilo per minute, IV nitroglycerin predominantly is a venous and coronary artery dilator. But I mean, if you can get some bang for your buck out of venous dilatation and bring down that blood pressure, that's a good thing. A lot of times we find ourselves climbing up quite rapidly though with IV nitroglycerin in order to uh, get systemic arterial dilation, which we don't really see until we're up around a mic per kilo per minute. Now coronaries, we talked about before that the coronaries will dilate at any dosage range. So in your mind, you really have to be separating your coronary arteries from your systemic arteries. So nitroglycerin is definitely a, a possibility, especially if the patient has a history of coronary artery disease. Now, another drug is nicardipine. Nicardipine or cardine is its trade name. It's a calcium, cha uh, calcium channel blocker and it's a dihydropyridine. And what that means is, is that a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker will not affect heart rate. And the easiest way to pick up on a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker is to look at its generic name. Its generic name will always end in pene. So things like amlodipine, nicardipine, nifedipine, all of those are dihydropyridines and they will not slow down your patient's heart rate. And we did go over this when we talked about antiarrhythmic drug therapy. So what we get out of calcium channel blocking is we get some nice vasodilation and it has one kind of the, um, the award, if you will, for being more user-friendly than Nipride because, because it causes fewer fluctuations in blood pressure when compared to Nipride. So you don't even see Nipride used near as much as you have in the past because, uh, because of nicardipine, it's become very popular. One drawback that we have to keep in mind, however, is that nicardipine definitely has a longer half-life than does nipride. Nipride is pretty much rapid on, rapid exit, and the half-life for nicardipine can be anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes. 
So just something important to keep in mind. One last factor about nicardipine is that when you administer it, it really should be in a central line. In fact, the manufacturer recommends that if it's given peripherally, the site should be changed every 12 hours. Can you imagine that? I mean, having being on a drug where your IV has to be changed every 12 hours. So again, a central line is definitely preferred for this drug to be sure. Now, another drug that's very popular is labetalol. It is also known as Normodyne or Trandate. Those are the trade names. Um, this drug is a combined alpha and beta blocker. And what it winds up providing you with is some real nice vasodilation. Another benefit of this drug, labetalol, is the fact that it can be given IV push in order to bring down the patient's blood pressure. Hydralazine. Hydralazine is a direct arterial dilator. And so it really doesn't have any effect on the venous circulation, but it is a nice dilator. And in fact, when we talk about somebody that is allergic to ACEs or ARBs, what we substitute to get the same kind of effect as an ACE or an ARB is a nitrate plus hydralazine. And the reason for that is, is the nitrate is going to give you preload reduction. And then the hydralazine is going to give you afterload reduction because it is a potent arteriolar dilator. The one potential issue with a patient being on hydralazine is they can develop tachycardia. And sometimes we need to buddy up the hydralazine with a beta blocker to minimize the effects of that reflex sympathetic stimulation on the patient's heart rate. So it's also a nice drug. We also have the family of ACEs and ARBs that we can use. And we know that the way that those drugs produce vasodilation, both arterial and venous, is through preventing the conversion or the receptor engagement of angiotensin II. Remember, angiotensin II is one of your body's most potent vasoconstrictors. So if you can either block angiotensin II from being formed or prevent angiotensin II from being able, able to link up at its binding site, as is the case with the ARBs, um, if you can block that, your patient is going to have arterial and venous dilation. And that's why the ACEs and ARBs do a great job at both preload and afterload reduction. We also have the beta blockers. And so we know them, of course, because they end in a lull. There's quite a few of them. And certainly because they block the outflow of renin, they kind of deactivate renin, if you will. Renin, if left to itself, would, would cause us to have vasoconstriction. So the way that beta blockers produce uh, vasodilation is by blocking renin. And remember, renin goes on to form angiotensin and then angiotensin II, which is a constrictor. So if we can block renin in a hypertensive patient and bring down pressure through uh, 
arterial dilation, it's always a, a good thing. Now, depending upon the beta blocker that you use, some of them are cardiac selective and some of them are non-cardiac selective. If a beta blocker is non-cardio selective, you have to be very mindful of ever giving it to somebody with reactive airway disease like asthma. But, you know, most of the beta blockers that are prescribed now are cardio selective. Case in point here, metoprolol, very cardio selective. Um, so the non-cardio selective beta blocker is the, you know, good old, uh, indorol or propranolol. And what happens with patients with reactive airway disease when given a non-cardio selective beta blocker is they can go on to develop bronchospasm, which always makes for a bad day. Then we have nitroprusside, nipride, and nipride is always referred to as a balanced dilator. And what's meant by that term balanced dilator is that it dilates both arteries and veins pretty much equally. Another good balanced dilator would be the ACEs and ARBs. The thing about nipride that really makes it very attractive is the fact that it is effective like immediately. I mean, you touch the patient with nipride and you see that vasodilation. Anybody that has ever worked in critical care any time at all has probably inadvertently done what I call the nipride whoops, where there's a little bit of nipride maybe in the IV catheter that inadvertently gets flushed into the patient for whatever reason. Maybe you're switching over to a maintenance and the last few drops of nipride get flushed in. That is when you see how your blood pressure is inversely related to your patient's because patient's blood pressure goes down. And of course, we all know where your blood pressure is. Anyway, so we like the fact that nipride's very fast, okay? But it's got a lot of drawbacks. You know, nipride is rapidly converted into thiocyanate. And thiocyanate is the stuff that cyanide comes from. So the last thing you're wanting to see is your patient becoming cyanide toxic, but it is real. I mean, cyanide toxicity is a, uh, a possibility, especially in patients that have compromised renal function. Um, you know, they can be at risk as can patients that are on higher dosages of nipride. They certainly can be at risk of thiocyanate and cyanide toxicity. And that's why we can monitor thiocyanate levels. Now, again, the goal with nipride is if they need nipride, okay, but the goal is to get them off it. So get other drugs on board to try and get them off the nipride as soon as possible. Now for the CCRN exam, you will need to know, of course, that the one little idiosyncrasy of nipride is the fact that it needs to be covered. It's very light sensitive. So you'll find yourself changing the bag every day. Whereas with nitroglycerin, that needs to be in a glass bottle because it can over time get absorbed in the, pa in the plastic of the IV bag. So nipride, light sensitive, needs to be uh, covered. And remember just a little bit can really have a major effect. And so starting out at 0.1 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute is really very much a, a kind of a prudent parameter. 
Now it stands to reason that hypotension is going to be your primary side effect of nitroprusside, but there are others we need to discuss. We talked about thiocyanate and cyanide toxicity. Patients that develop cyanide toxicity typically manifest with CNS types of issues, you know, ataxia, apraxia, altered level of consciousness. Um, but there's also things like coronary steel, for example. What is coronary steel? I mean, what, what kind of a strange term. Coronary steel means that the larger coronary vessels are stealing flow from the smaller coronaries. So steel, not like the metal, but steel, like I'm stealing from you. And so what happens with nitride is that it really dilates, you know, the major coronaries. And as they dilate, they kind of pull flow away from collateral circulation. And if you've worked with cardiac patients for any, any time at all, you know that a lot of patients are living on their collateral flow. So that's why if somebody is having an acute MI and they also are severely hypertensive, we do not use nitroprusside on these people because it could worsen the infarct by worsening the ischemia by stealing flow from the collateral circulation. Also, methemoglobinemia. Okay, that's a bad thing. Now, how would you even suspect that your patient on nipride is developing methemoglobinemia? Watch their pulse ox. And the pulse ox keeps trending down, down, down for no explainable reason. And your patient is on nipride. You have to think about a couple of things. Nipride, just by virtue of being nipride, is a pulmonary dilator. And so by dilating pulmonary vascular bed, you can actually cause, just related to gravitational forces, more of the blood flow to kind of fall down toward the bases of the lungs and more of the airflow oxygen to go toward the apices. So you can develop a ventilation to perfusion mismatch and you can see a drop in pulse ox due to a shunting effect just by virtue of being on nipride. But what happens with methemoglobinemia is that the hemoglobin molecule becomes unable to carry oxygen normally. And so you're seeing this trending down of the patient's pulse ox. Also, when you draw the patient's blood, the blood looks more chocolatey, like a reddish chocolatey color. That's methemoglobin. So a couple of things that uh, we need to keep in mind over and above the obvious that the patient can become hypotensive. So let's finish our talk on hypertensive emergencies by talking about some common presentations and which drugs, which infusions we would choose for a given particular type of patient. So let's talk about somebody that comes in with hypertensive encephalopathy. What kind of drugs are preferred for them? Well, we would find ourselves giving labetalol, 
nicardipine, and one drug I didn't mention, which is a <clears throat> another nice arterial dilator, is phenoldepam. It is a nice arterial dilator given via infusion, but very expensive. So it's really not given um, all that often in critical care. I've seen phenoldepam given most often in patients that were having uh, renal stents put in that develop hypertension surrounding renal stent placement. So uh, again, it's not a typical drug that you see in critical care. Acute kidney injury. Now we're looking at things like labetalol, nicardipine, or again, phenoldepam for somebody with hypertensive crisis related to AKI. Again, you know, we said with Nipride, the problem is, is if you have somebody with renal dysfunction on Nipride, they can become toxic on Nipride more quickly. Now let's look at the patient with acute coronary syndrome. Well, for those guys, we're going to choose nitroglycerin and an IV beta blocker for uh, treatment of their hypertension. What about the patient that develops a hypertensive crisis related to an intracranial hemorrhage? We're going to find ourselves using nicardipine and phenoldepam for that population. What about periop or post-op uh, hypertension? This is where we're looking at nipride very commonly, also esmolol which is also known as beta-PACE, which is infusible beta blocker, and nicardipine, which is again our dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. So these are just some, some common presentations and the types of antihypertensive infusions we may uh, encounter. So the last one would be the patient that presents with hyperadrenergic or sympathetic crisis. That might be the patient with cocaine, amphetamine, PCP overdose. What would we use for those people for uh, hypertensive crisis? Probably the star players here will be labetalol or nicardipine and perhaps nitroprusside. Certainly with adrenergic crisis, you want to block adrenergic receptors. So uh, again, labetalol would be uh, a nice drug to use in this case. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this presentation on hypertensive crisis. I encourage you please to go check out my website, khoppypresents.com. Join me on Facebook for CCRN questions at khoppypresents. And I will see you soon in episode 17, where we're going to be discussing valvular heart disease. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.